I welcome Frank McGuinness and Rebecca Peelan. Thank you very much, Fiek, and thank you all for coming out on what is a fairly dirty old morning in Dublin. Particular thanks to Frank, who's not feeling very well. He has a dreaded lurgy, but he has medicine in his bag in case he needs it. And I'm pretty I, high on the old Benel, and I warn you, so. I, 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 wasn't going to, I wasn't going to name any particular products. <laughs> we need the endorsement. <laughs> Good morning, Frank. Morning, Rebecca. And thank you so much for making it here today. I know you're not thank feeling you terribly well. You picked the title of today's session yes. as Strange Meeting. Yes. Why? Well, I mean, it's always, as you know, trying to find a title for something that is kind of amorphous. It's a nightmare to do it. And then I went back to um, the very first production of Observe the Sons of Ulster, Mighty Lord's Psalm, which happened here at the Peacock. Um, and uh, I always try to give great attention to programmes um, and that poem, um, together with Naomi Dickinson's poem, that poem of Wilfred Owens I thought was particularly um, relevant to the play but it was also a revealing of myself because I had, as a, very, as a young man, um, warmly embraced the writing of Wilfred Owen. He spoke to me in a way that uh, you know, I was urgent and hungry to hear speaking to me. Um, and more than any of the other war poems, I did revere Secrets of Soon and Isaac Rosenberg especially, but Wilfred Owen seemed to touch something extremely dark and extremely scary in me. Um, and th I feel that that poem, in its strange way, shaped the whole nature of Observe the Sons of Ulster and give it its strangeness as much as anything. Because I recognised from uh, very early in the writing process that I would not be writing documentary. I would not be writing um, a conventional war play. I would be uh, looking at um, how the living are informed by the dead, how the dead never leave the living, um, and how strange our existence is. And that poem, I think, um, does bring that meeting of worlds, of, of physical and non-physical worlds, to, um, uh, to a head, and how the enemy speaks to the ally, and in that speaking makes them, if you like, one, makes them um, men together, humans together. Is the narrator of that poem dead? Um, I don't think so, actually. I think it's whoever they're talking to. Uh, they're dreaming. Dreaming. And that's a form of death. And as you know, the Sons of Ulster begins in a dream. Mm. Um, it's a crucial part of the um, staging of the play and of the understanding for the actors and the directors that you never, ever forget. It's a dream. It's a dream world. Anything can happen in that dream world. Owen said that his, his subject was war and the pity of war and that the poetry was to be found, I'm sorry, the, the, the meaning was to be found in the poetry as yes. opposed to the war. Are we then to find the pity in the drama in Sons of Ulster? Well, I, I did know that quote, and I, I think it's a very impressive quote about the pity of war. But I mean, I think that when I was trying to write this play, I, I recognised well into the research of it and, and the various drafts of it that, I mean, my subject was men. Um, and the love of men, the different types of the love of men, and how that love is channeled, if you like, in um, a military sense, and how it's channeled in a personal sense, um, how heterosexual men kind of as deep um, and satisfying, if you like, relationships with each other as homosexual men can have, 
um, but I also wanted to see the dangers of that loyalty, the dangers of that um, uh, love, and how at the end, I mean, they all die at the end, let's not face let's face that, all these men die, including Piper, who's still alive, doing the dream, but he himself says, none of us came through the battle. Um, and I think I had that tension going for me the whole way through it. Were you surprised when Protestant Ulster didn't take to the play? Uh, no, not in the slightest, actually. Um, I think that uh, some of them did. Ask. Some of them did take to it. I mean, I, I got a very, very warm response to it, particularly when we brought it to Coleraine, mm. and it was one of the um, highlights of my life, because uh, I'd written a fair bit of it in Coleraine, um, when at, in the Riverside Theatre, beside the River Ban, the Coleraine, um, Moore and Millen, the two Coleraine guys, one says, take me back home, and I mean, it was mm. an extremely powerful moment in that theatre. Uh, I always remember that at the end of it, uh, the audience were silent utterly and absolutely silent. Mm -hmm. And I could feel a panic coming off the actors. And then Larkin Cranich, who was playing um, Craig, uh, took off his helmet and they went bonkers. Mm -hmm. So I think it wouldn't be fair to say they didn't take to it. I think Patrick said yesterday that some old uh, fellas said about uh, there, no there were no fruits at the Somme. But I mean, what can you do with things <coughs> like that, actually? Uh, he, he's out of date. Uh, well, you know, he's out of date. He knows nothing that's going on, and I just console myself with saying, you must work with the Irish Times. <laughs> uh, now, I got into awful trouble with you a few years ago by, in his company, calling the play, Behold the Sons of Ulster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the kind of reaction that I got. The Observe the Sons of Ulster yeah. is very interesting. You're a wordsmith. You have a background in linguistics. You know what you're doing with words. And observe seems to me to be a very connotative word. It has so many different layers. Yes. You know, we observe a minute's silence, which implies a kind of communal understanding, for example, of a moment of respect for the... What, what, why observe? Who's well, observing? I think that um, this whole idea of the dream at the beginning, actually, where uh, Piper raises his dead, um, he does so through his own artistic integrity and he does so through his own artistic ability. Um, and essentially when they do rise, he knows they're not going to speak, but he does see them. And it is in the seeing of them that he unleashes this torrent of questions um, and he unleashes this energy, which is a death energy. He's going to die at the end of the play. There's no question of that. But what I wanted to get across was um, that uh, there is a detachment in the play there is that um, freedom to, um, if you like, go anywhere, use an architecture that is highly conscious and highly constructed and that will um, reveal the complexity and the density of the culture that I'm writing about. And I felt that in making Piper as an artist and making him a sculptor, and in particular a sculptor at the time where he comes to his great crisis, which is in Paris in, at the turn of the century, I could, um, if you like, draw on the breaking of vision and the breaking of space, uh, which so deeply affects them in the artistic movement of cubism. So in other words, what I was trying to get there was that, um, you know, I'm not just writing about Ulster Protestants, I'm writing about the diversity within them, I'm writing about the strangeness of them, I'm writing about the complexity of them. And if I'm to do that, then I need to have a detachment, if you like, and a distance from it. So it's very important for me that the play would have that word observe in it. And I just think it's a stronger and more decisive 
command, if you like, than behold. Um, also, you know my superstitions, I have to have an odd number of words, odd number of syllables, odd number of letters, and uh, does uh, behold else, doesn't have More that. importantly, do the, do, does everyone else know this? Every play I write has an odd number of words, odd number of syllables, odd number of letters in the title. Otherwise, I can't write it. <laughs> So Bag Lady was much easier to come up with. Bag Lady was yeah. a lot okay. easier, yeah. Okay, yeah, fair yeah. enough. So a lot of the discussion over the last few days has been about commemoration, about memorialising. Mm -hmm. And Fiak actually called you a prophet oh. uh, in his introduction. <laughs> He's called me many other things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Which is lovely, though, to think of. Uh, I think it's lovely to think of you as a prophet. Do you think there's a, there's a correct time for plays? Do you think they have their time, their moment? I don't know, actually. I really don't know. Uh, I think that s sometimes you can, um, if you're into it, hit pay dirt, and you can come up with uh, something that really, really is grasping the moment, uh, something people want to see, something people need to see. Uh, as with everything else, luck enters the equation um, in playwriting as much as it does in every other activity. Um, I, I have to say I don't think I've ever had that luck, ever. Um, and I don't think I've ever pursued that luck. Uh, um, but I feel that certainly some plays do come into their time and others um, are sitting there still waiting. Um, and, you know, I, I can think of colleagues' plays, which I think are major works, major statements of political intent, which um, I don't think have been fully... Um, realised yet in terms of finding an audience. I'm not going to mention them no more than I would mention my own that I feel that about. But it's a consolation to me to know that um, we're fighting a battle for recognition. And it's a necessity to fight that battle for recognition. You know, I, 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 I kind of, I've never asked for an easy ride. I've never given myself an easy ride. Um, and I never want an easy ride. Mm. And I think for that reason, if you find you're writing a play, which is... Um, going to have pay dirt. There is a terrible streak in me that will uh, do the opposite. You know, when I wrote um, the play about the Second World War, which is the companion piece to um, Sons of Ulster, Dolly West Kitchen, mm. I knew Rima was going to die in the play. I knew it because my mother had died a couple of years before it and I was in gigantic crisis. And this play was a method of confronting that grief. But I knew it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I always think it's revealing of your plays when they go abroad. Um, one, um, one actor said to me, how did the Irish audience take it to the fact that there was a gay Irish soldier in the play? And I said, the audience had no bother with a gay Irish soldier. What they had a major problem with was that the Irish mother dies in the middle of the second act. Mm -hmm. And they're going to murder me. But, I mean, this was absolutely deliberate, absolutely deliberate, because if I had any kind of emotional point that I make in the play, it is your mother dies. Your mother dies. Mm. Um, and when Rima does die, I mean, I, I'm not going to start, you know, doing crude criticism, actually. It's no accident it's called The West, Dolly West Kitchen. It's in the heart of the Second World War. Um, the, the earth has changed, the world has changed, our whole culture has changed. And um, for that reason, I, I had to do what I did there. But I had such pressure on me, particularly when people were interested in doing the play abroad, to rewrite it mm. and to let Rima live. 
So you can see what I mean there about how sometimes you must fight pay dirt. You must fight it and fight it and fight it. Just to, before we move on, I want to come back to Sons of Ulster for a moment and ask you, Patrick Mason mentioned the other day the origins of the play when you were teaching mm. in Coleraine and you used to pass the uh, memorial and see the names. Is that where... The, do, do you, I know there's an expanded version of that. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, I think that it's true that um, I had this uh, strange um, connection. Um, I, was, uh, I was waiting for a lift to go out to teach in Coleraine in the college and I, I'd never noticed war monuments really that much before but I saw this war monument with a list of names uh, and I, you know, that was there. And then I went out and I was given a, a lecture in, in linguistics as well, which is what I was teaching there. And then when you get these blinding flashes uh, of shock, uh, it suddenly dawned on me that this, the kids that I was teaching, probably every young man in that class would have enlisted and most of them would have died and it's quite possible that I would have as well and I would be dead. And that was the connection, that was the leap. Um, and it went from there, I mean I'm not saying that the whole play took shape, the Madeline cake, I mean that there, but it certainly was uh, for the first time I could connect the story of the First World War to the story of my life. Uh, and of course like all major revelations, particularly for an artist, it becomes a part of your sense of your own mortality. Um, if memory is anything, it is a fight against mortality. And that is why when I remember that incident, it's as important to me as the memory of the war uh, in terms of writing the play. Mm -hmm. I, I have to always say that that subjective truth is extremely important to assert because it means that you stand on your own, you invent your own story, you tell your own truth, you find your own narrative, you go into the darkness on your own, you go into the contradictions and the complexities and the ambiguities on your own, and if you can come through that, then you've written a play. Um, you haven't written half a play or a quarter of a play, you haven't used other people's work to write the play, you've written your own play. And it's imperative that you do that if you are to be a serious artist. It's imperative you do that. So what's the relationship between that personal memory and the wider either societal memory, communal memory, or national memory? Well, it's very important for me to remember that personal memory because it effectively stopped me from seeing the play as um, a spokesperson for any side or an apology for any political point of view. Uh, it saved me from, if you like, ideological nonsense. Um, there is a place for ideology, but it certainly wasn't in the writing of that play. Mm -hmm. And it left me with um, you know, a protectiveness towards it that at times verges on the um, you know, vandalistic, yes. that if you come to me and say that it's about this or about that, uh, or it's you know, a denial of this or denial of that, um, then I know that you're wrong because it comes from inside me. Um, it's a statement of my work, myself. Um, and if you try to make it part of an agenda, I will not let you. So you're quite belligerent then. That's essentially what you're saying in both your writing and in terms of critics, you're, you're quite belligerent. I mean, I knew you were belligerent before I even met you because as somebody who comes from uh, the Northern Protestant tradition uh, way back, uh, anybody who would actually make Piper 
as a middle-class gay Protestant man in a play like that did not want to, you know, get support or applause from certain aspects of the community. That was, I think, quite a belligerent move. Well, I mean, my answer to that is why should they? Why should they support it? Mm. You know, mm. uh, my feeling about it was uh, Piper goes through an extraordinary journey in the play, as far as I'm concerned. He goes through an immense sexual revelation about himself and uh, brings, he finds sexual peace there. Mm. And of course, the great tragedy is that it's lost almost instantly. Mm. I, I don't think it was, quite honestly, um, I don't think the problem came from um, Piper being um, a gay middle class sculptor. The problem came from the fact that the deepest homosexual nature in the play is David Craig. Working class. Working class mm. Uh, mm. blacksmith. Mm. Um, and uh, he, in fact, if you do look at the play and the shades of the play, he initiates the whole thing. Mm. He's on the make the whole time. He's in love with Piper from almost the first word, from, mm. from love at first sight. I believe in love at first sight, by the way. Yeah. And um, Craig is in love with mm. Piper um, because he's never met anybody like this mm. strange being. So you do believe in love at first sight? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's a revelation to me. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to think that you're, to some of your, I, per, on a very personal level, as somebody who does, you know, critique uh, literature generally, I don't believe that Sons of Ulster has reached its moment yet. I think it has to come. Uh, but I'm also thinking about other plays like Bag Lady mm. or There Came a Gypsy Riding, mm. which are about issues that are very topical these mm. days at the moment. Mm. You, but when was that? 1985 for Bag Lady? Uh, Bag Lady was actually written in 19... It was the second play. That was written in Coleraine as well in 1983. Gosh, that early. Mm. So, you know, the timing of that play is interesting in, in relation to what we've been reading about and going through in the last few mm. years as well. That's what I meant about the timing of plays. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, I don't know where Bagley came from. Bagley, it was originally called Who's at the Window Who? Um, and that is a song from my childhood, which is uh, Who's at the Window Who? Who's at the Window Who? A bad, bad man with a bag on his back coming to take you away. And that's where that began. Mm. And something came after that. Uh, and it turned into an extremely um, complicated story that it's extraordinarily hard to get a grip on yeah. um, and it keeps escaping um, just when you think, I know there's some chatting to actresses who played it, mm. just when you think you, you know where she's going, mm. she's gone, mm. she's away um, and she keeps her privacy, that's what I say about my beloved bag lady, mm. she always keeps her privacy, I don't know her, she knows herself mm. but I don't know her. So you said your beloved bag lady. Do mm. you love all of your plays? Do you love all of your work? Not necessarily the characters, but the yeah. Uh, well, I've, I, I kind of, I, I would stand over them all. Mm. Yeah, I would. And you don't change plays generally. You, you. I try not to. Yes. I really try not to. Actually, I mean, um, sometimes you know, you think you're smarter when you're 20 years older, and you look at something, and then you discover that's what seems like a flaw or a, a rawness is in fact an extremely interesting irresolution. Mm. And um, I love living things at times not solved. Mm. I love to live an enigma about what's going on there because I think it, it, um, it shows something about the work which is bigger than yourself. Um, and I kind of, I like to, to read it and feel I, I can't answer everything about it. Mm. 
Uh, one of the other things that's come up over the last few days is, is uh, at one, in one of the sessions, quite controversially, the notion that um, there, is an, there is often in drama or in theatre uh, an effort to aestheticise mm. trauma or just reality. Mm. How do you feel about that? Well, I think it depends on what you mean um, by aestheticise. I think if you sit down and con consciously to create a story, a layered story, which I think is your job, then inevitably you have to draw on skills which will protect you as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an artist, as a writer. And I think that um, that is an extremely powerful weapon in um, the writing of something because it is, uh, if you like, essential that in the course of your career, and I tell this to everybody who's starting writing, in the course of your career, the one quality that you most need is stamina. And the way you get stamina is training. And training is knowing what you're doing. And knowing what you're doing is writing your story and then rewriting it, and then rewriting it. I mean, I could do nine drafts of a play if I need to. I think that um, probably Dolly West Kitchen was the shortest of them all. There's only four of it. Um, but most of them can go up to nine. Mm. And this means that when I go onto a rehearsal room, I know what I'm doing. But it also means that I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. So I have the contradiction that I love. Um, and I will allow debate and discussion to happen without claiming that I know everything, but I certainly know something. Mm. Um, and uh, will not be afraid to let people know that. Um, but it, it's, it's imperative if you take yourself seriously as a writer. You're not, you're not an historian. You're not a journalist. Mm. You know, you're not a, a memorialist. You're not a, an obituarist. You're a playwright. And you work as a playwright. And you put standards for yourself and challenges for yourself that should scare the shit out of you. Mm. And if you do that, you're doing your job. Mm. But if you take easy way out, if you use other people to um, solve your problems, if you steal, right? Mm. Badly steal. I don't mean nick something from Shakespeare, nick something from Chekhov. I mean, if you steal mm. something, yeah. you'll pay for it. In the long run, you'll pay for it. What so, goes around comes around. <laughs> sure. Um, so. But those of us who know you at UCD, for example, also know that the professor, Frank McGuinness, is, even though it's professor of creative writing, mm. uh, you're a very solid, rigorous academic. Mm. You're a scholar as well as a creative writer. Is that the same person as Professor Frank McGuinness, the same person as Frank McGuinness, playwright? I don't think so, no. Um, I think that um, they're, they're certainly connected. There's no question of it. They're deeply connected. But I want to have a creative connection. Mm. Uh, it's the reason why I do as many um, European plays as possible. I think I can use the two skills there. Mm. Um, and they can live together in that way. Um, I have always in my career only truly respected people in my profession who can crack the great classical texts. Mm. It's so important that we as writers learn practically from them and that we do not give them exclusively to um, other practitioners. And especially, it's so important that we do not hand them over 
to critics and academics um, because they are our way, and I'm speaking as a playwright now, they are our way of toughening ourselves up and this quality of stamina that comes from it. Now, I think it's because I teach that I am so aggressive on that point that uh, you need to learn your craft, you need to know what you're at. Um, and you, you always have to shock yourself by what you don't know. I mean, when I was asked to do Oedipus for Rafe uh, Fiennes at the, at the National, uh, I believed I knew this play. I taught it. I, and then I started to go through it. Mm. And suddenly, the sheer grief of what's happening, you know, the dirty joke is not a dirty joke. This is a terrible thing happening to an innocent human being. Um, and his poor wife, mother, Claire Higgins, got the sheer desolation of the truth of that. And I think that, if you like, the Greeks are the masters of how you use, if you like, artifice, how you use imagery, how you use story, to create this extraordinary vision, this imaginary vision, which has the essence of truth in it. Um, how can you not learn from that? How can you not? Uh, learn from teaching it, how can we not learn from, from working on it, the practical side of it. It's wonderful to be um, in the position that I'm in, coming from the background that I come from, which like yourself is, is northern working class. And in many respects, I have never lost sight of that truth, that political reality, that political consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, my first play, The Factory Girls, was, if you like, it was a memory play, it was a commemoration of um, the sheer power and strength of working class Bonkrana woman. Mm. One of the great things about it was the sheer comedy of it, the sheer humor of them, the savagery of their humor, how they would do it. Um, but that was, I think, you know, my beginning as a writer of history plays. It seemed like a contemporary play, but it was going right back into their, um, you know, 100 years of their existence and of, of, of that profession. And what I felt I have always tried to find was the practicalities of what I'm doing. And to stress for myself at the various stages of doing the practicalities of that, you know and I know that the best academic work and the best academic research is the most practical. Mm -hmm. Always and ever the most practical. Even if you look at, I mean, I'm not going to start going into theory and the rest of it, but you can see something extraordinarily beautiful in the construction of certain um, philosophic trends and thoughts, and you can stand back and, and be dazzled by it. But I like getting in and getting dirty. I like getting in and um, how does it work? Tell me how does it work? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I am useless in, around the house. I can barely change a light bulb. But when it comes to um, a play or another person's play, I can give you a pretty good working demonstration of how it functions. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think that's been a saving grace for me in the exercise of my ambition, which mm. is ferocious, as you mm. know. I was going to take a cheap shot and say, when you said you like to get down and dirty, that you can take the man out of Johnny Gall, but you can never take Johnny Gall out of the man, but I won't do that. Uh, do you, you, so you can learn from writers. You love Ibsen. Yes, yeah, I love him, yeah, yeah. And, and the you love Shakespeare. Shakespeare you love is the Greeks, yeah, mighty. Generally. Yeah, and, you know. Do you learn from... I'm a fan. I was, I've always yes. been a fan, you yeah. know I mean? Do you think the Greeks can still teach? Is that ongoing? Is that something, or is that something that you can mine and then you have to leave alone? Um, well, I think that's what is quite extraordinary about working on the Greeks. 
I find that we have discovered nothing new compared to what they yeah. have. Um, and I, what I love about them is the sheer courage of how far they go. I always had a problem with the Greeks in that I didn't believe in the gods. And it was only when I started to work on them that I recognized neither do they. Mm. Mm. And it was a wonderful revelation. Mm. This, so you, you love the, we, we all know that and, and drawing on text from the past and doing versions of text and so on. But what a lot of people may not realize is that you, you also are a great fan of popular culture. Oh yeah. You love music yeah. and film and yeah. television. Yeah. I don't think I've ever mentioned anything in terms of popular culture that you don't know. I don't know where you get the time to watch it. But what does popular culture offer you? We can, it, it, I think it's much easier to see what the Greek tragedies might offer you in terms of your work, uh, which is so serious and you know, so deep, sometimes dark. But what, what do you get from popular culture? Well, I still like the boogie, you know, I mean. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a very good thing to do. I also feel, you know, I, I feel that um, if you look at commemoration, in my play, uh, in my play Greta Garbo came to Johnny Gall, mm -hmm. an absolute core of that is the fact it's set in 1967. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the young girl in the play is saving up to buy Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Mm -hmm. And this is absolutely crucial for the play because a revolution is happening. Yeah. Um, Garbo comes and in the play, um, and I love doing things like that, she starts the Northern Ireland conflict. Mm -hmm. Greta Garbo started it. I don't know <laughs> if you know that or not, know, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jane Austen also caused the Irish famine, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> But you see, it's our duty to say things like that. It's our duty to cause confusion mm. and anarchy. It's our duty to, to come to something like this and make that statement. Mm. Um, and why though, Frank? Why is it Because it's why is so it important that nobody can anticipate what you're going to do. Yeah. So you have to be a bad bollocks. Mm. You have to. Mm. If you don't. I can attest to that. <laughs> you know, if, if you're not, yes. you're safe. Okay. And, and not I good. mean, yeah. there's too much safety in this country. Yeah. Far too much. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm not going to get into details about it, but the one, on. thing, the one thing I hope I will never be yeah. is safe. Yes. Uh, I will make the outrageous. I will do the strange. I will put Piper in there. Yeah. Slit, slit in his hand. I will, I will love yeah. the human capacity mm. for um, free will, for free action. Mm. You know? Yeah. Again, it was an awful shock to, I think, the Protestants that. Sons of Ulster is at one level a great celebration of free will. Yes. Um, and that, for, uh, certainly for philosophic Protestant tradition, that was yeah, yeah. a bit of a shock. Yes. I just want to, we're going to have to wind up. I can't believe where the time has gone. Um, but I, I just want to ask you a couple of questions that you sure. haven't, you may not be able to predict. Okay. But um, bear with me, I might get into trouble for this. Uh -huh. uh, what's your favourite colour and has it ever played any part in your plays? Uh, my favourite colour is red. I love redheads. My whole family, um, every single one of our family, uh, with the exception of one cousin, is red-haired. Every single one of them. <laughs> Luckily, we don't have buck teeth, which would be just perfect. You know? <laughs> but it's my favourite colour. And if, you, um, if, if life hadn't taken you down the path that you're on mm. at the moment, what might you have been, or what would you have liked to have been? I probably would have committed suicide. I thought you were going to say a DJ. Well, you said you couldn't predict it. No, clearly. <laughs> you don't even like safety with, with, in strange meetings like no, this. But, um, you know, but, but I, I do think that it's probably saved my life. Hmm. I mean, I can understand Are you serious now? Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely serious, yeah. Absolutely. 
I mean, if you look at my plays, the theme of suicide is so prominent in mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, and I tackled it directly in um, Became a Gypsy Raiden mm -hmm. because I think one of the gigantic crises in this country is um, the suicide of young men. Yes. Um, and so few people are actually aesthetically dealing with it. Mm. Um, and, you know, in, in the play, I try to make it a very specific family mm. with a very specific problem. The boy never, the boy's dead, he never speaks. He, he sends a little letter, um, a very strange, enigmatic letter. Um, but I, I think that uh, I, I have an understanding. I have a sympathy for it, I have an affinity for it. Mm. You know, again, it's, it's no accident that um, Sylvia Plath was a massive power in my life when I was younger. That, those three lines, dying is an art, like everything else, I do it remarkably well. The ambiguity of that, you know, mm. dying is an art, mm. like everything else, I do it remarkably well. Um, I've always understood that. I've always understood that ambiguity. This is not the last question, but as an aside to that, your plays also have a lot of ghosts, mm. or pre you know, absent presences in them. Do you yeah. believe in ghosts? Yes, completely. You do? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay. Totally. I mean, it depends on how you want to see ghosts. Yes. Um, you know, there are ghosts all around here. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, you, you have to be careful how you respect them. Mm -hmm. So, again, the whole notion of commemoration and being careful and how, how you actually pay homage to... Well, when I write a play, I come up with the title and I mm -hmm. sit and I say nothing and I do nothing. And I wait and I wait and I wait. And then the voices start. And I listen, and I listen. And sometimes they say the same, sometimes they don't. With Sons of Ulster, the play began in a hiring fair in the 1890s. And there were two countrywomen uh, talking to each other. And I started to write it. And after two pages, it stopped. And I was devastated because I felt this is, I know, even as a young man, this is the real thing. This is the real thing. And I could have panicked. But I didn't. I sat down and listened again, listened again. And then the younger woman's voice started to change and deepen. And it became the elder Piper. And I'd been listening to his grandmother. So you need to have that kind of strangeness about your work to save yourself from doing what other people want you to do. Never do that. I don't think there's any chance of you ever doing that, but um, the last question that I wanted to ask you is, and this is the one that you need to stand by for because I could be in trouble. Um, if you woke up in the morning and the national newspapers were declaring that you were officially a national treasure, what would you do? How would you react? <laughs> I'd piss myself laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, are you, well, what would you do? <laughs> Frank McGuinness, thank you very thank much you indeed. Very much.